Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. Hello, and welcome to the podcast, My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and in this podcast, I ask my guests to tell me the five things from their life that they would choose to preserve in a time capsule. They can pick anything. Four of the things are ones they cherish and would be keen to preserve or have again. The fifth is something they regret or wish had never happened, something they'd like to bury deep in the ground and never have to think about again. This episode's guest is the comedy writer and performer, Sean Harris, the co-writer of Greg Davis's Channel 4 comedy show, Man Down. She also wrote Tourist Trap for BBC Wales, starring Sally Phillips, and she co-writes and stars in her own sketch show on S4C, or Diwith, and also co-wrote and performed in the Sony award-winning sketch show, Here Be Dragons. She co-hosted The Rod Gilbert Show with her husband, Rod Gilbert, on BBC Radio Wales, and has written for programmes such as BBC Two's Nevermind the Buzzcocks and BBC Radio 4's The News Quiz. Last year, Sean wrote, produced and performed in the BAFTA Cymru-nominated comedy short film, Neckface. Sean and Rod have their own brilliant podcast called The Froth, and she was named One to Watch by the Edinburgh TV Festival in 2021, but I think she's the one to listen to. So here is the gorgeous Sean Harris and the things she'd like to put in her time capsule. Yeah, no, that is just so poignant. I often think that about um, little kids who are sent away from their parents. Yeah. I just, it feels so unnatural. Doesn't it just? It really does. And it's not to diss anyone who's had that um, background, but it feels like you're not supposed to be. <laughs> and it, I think it does something to you inside. I think it means you have to survive. So you lose a part of part of what it's like to be, to empathise or something. You shut it down. You shut bits down. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, in a way, that's sort of what they're aiming for, I think, yeah. is they're sort of saying, you know, they, they use the terms, we need to toughen them up. It's a tough world out there. They've got to learn to fight. Because you know, of that's the people who you've created to go out there. You know, if you had empathetic people, then it wouldn't be that tough. We would, we'd all rub along and, you know, <laughs> there's no need. No, we'd help people. We'd see people struggling and we'd yeah. help them. Oh, good grief. No, it, it really breaks the... It breaks my heart. I think what's really interesting as well is um, the role that comedy can play in that. That kind of, um, I know myself that I definitely use laughter as a uh, coping mechanism. And I think I've had to kind of look at that and kind of go, what's going on? Why can't you discuss anything seriously? What is going on? You know? Yeah. I have friends as well who can't discuss things. Seriously, they cannot. Can't do it. 
and it's uh, it's very interesting. Yeah, I think uh, I think I may be one of those people. <laughs> if anything has come out of me doing this podcast, it's my ability, first of all, to listen to other people, which is a just a brilliant skill to learn in your sixties. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it's so difficult sometimes, isn't it? I think I think yeah, a lot of people get that lesson when you're quite you know you're you're well into it, you're well into life, and you go, hang on, I don't, li- oh God, I don't listen, I just wait for my turn. Yeah. <laughs> And especially if you're in comedy, your brain sometimes works so quickly bouncing off what someone else has said that you're like, right, got that in the can. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, I'm going to say next to bounce off that. And then you forget to actually listen to what this person is saying. (laughs) You know? And you take the first opportunity. You will cut right in. If they leave a gap, that's the end of their conversation. You're in. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's a real, it's a skill in itself, but it's such an odd skill to unlearn I think mm. yeah listening is key sorry what were you saying <laughs> I said listening <laughs> <laughs> okay right lovely Sean we're going to talk about five things that you've chosen from your life right. to put into a time capsule I'm so cluttered <laughs> um I have so many just cluster yeah, we'll come we'll come on to this. I am a lover of things. Mm-hmm. So I just naturally surround myself with stuff. And that's not to say it's not expensive stuff or anything. It's things like bits of paper with things on. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. I, do, I don't know what it is. Um, but the first thing I want to, I think I've narrowed it down. The first thing is my grandmother's coat, which um, I found in the attic... I was living in Cardiff at the time and I'd obviously, my grandmother died like, oh God, how long did she die? 14 years ago. And we were incredibly close. And I found her coat in my attic. It was a really stormy night and we were about to go out somewhere, but it was like a big night out and I was in winter time. And for some reason I was in the attic, just like looking through stuff. And I was in my party dress, which was quite, you know, glittery and kind of blow back and going I what coat am I gonna wear I can't wear <laughs> you know what I mean <laughs> yeah and I found this coat and it was Mungie's and it was just perfect it was absolutely perfect it's this big coat it's this big kind of coat of shirling you know kind of it feels like fur but it isn't fur yeah. it feels like fur it's Marks and Sparks but good Marks and Sparks and it felt like a big hug and it's really big and you can crutch up in it and it was just it was just perfect and I've worn it every winter since so that's about a decade I just love it I absolutely love it and it's been everywhere with me it's been to like job interviews festivals <laughs> I shouldn't really watch the festivals but um you know festival yeah the, the comedy awards it's been absolutely everywhere and it's like having a hug from her you know because it still smells a bit of her as well and I, I was going to ask does it have a smell because quite often particularly women of that era would have worn perfume yeah. and that does linger doesn't it yes and hairspray you know elmet <sighs> hairspray and it's just so warm and it looks really it looks stylish it's kind of timeless because it's this big black oversized it just looks awesome with everything and it was such a gift you know that when I needed something. How lovely. Imagine how she'd feel if she knew that was the case. I know. And she was always like obsessed with me keeping warm, you know, constantly coming into rooms and going, are you warm enough? (laughs) 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 So yeah, that's really lovely that I've got that. And I think what's odd as well, I, I often find things of hers, like since she died, and I often look for things. Like, so we have I lived in a house after a while after my grandparents died in West Wales. And it's kind of, I've kind of kept it exactly as they left it, which is a bit uh. weird, but lovely. I really like it. So, so and sometimes I, I find messages from her, you know, because she used to practice her handwriting. She wasn't, she was first language Welsh. So she wasn't, she could, I mean, she could speak English, but she wasn't educated in like writing it. You know, mm. if she had to write a postcard or something, she'd practice her handwriting. Uh-huh. You know, the, the little bits of card that you'd get from a packet of tights. <laughs> yeah, I do. I've done panto. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, <laughs> um, she would write sentences on those and to practice. And so I'd come across one of those with a little message in 
in different drawers, you know, things like, um, hi, Sean, having a lovely time. And it, it, was just, oh. uh, it happens a lot in my grandparents' house. It happens. And also because maybe I'm looking for them as well. I search for things. I like it. Oh, I'm not surprised. I mean, they must absolutely come alive yeah. for you. Yes, it's, it's gorgeous. The weirdest one was I was reading her cookery book because I've still got her cookery book and I was reading it looking for messages you know just going oh my god I wonder if there's anything in here and I got to the, <laughs> I got right to the end and um it was really odd it was about two or three in the morning because I stay up late quite often watching things and I was watching Gavin and Stacey again and um that was on in the background and all of a sudden, I, I got to the end of this book and I was like, oh, there's no message. It's really disappointing. I was expecting something, or what, but never mind. And I looked up and I watched Gavin and Stacey and something like Uncle Bryn said something and I laughed out loud, which is really unusual. I don't know if you watch comedy at three o'clock in the morning. When you're on your own, mm. I very rarely laugh out loud. So it was kind of, oh, you know, and I swear to God, this happened. I looked back down at the cookery book and it was upside down because I put it down to, to look at the TV. And in my grandmother's handwriting, it said, don't laugh, Shan. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Honestly, I screamed and I threw the book across the room. because <laughs> It was so specific. And my mind is like going, well, when would she have written that? And why? Why would she have written that? Well, all of them, really. Maybe she thought, oh, well, Sean will find this, you know, she'll she'll find this you know, next week or something. But I suppose the ones the ones on the tights, I think I understand it, is her practising postcards to me, mm. blah, blah, blah. But the cookery one, I'm like, all I can think of, she must have been on the phone or something once and I was messing around and she must have written down, look, stop laughing and showed it to me, you know? But I don't remember yeah. this. I just think, how on earth? It's so weird. That's the weirdest thing I've ever experienced. That's extraordinary. <laughs> that is really weird. Isn't it? Yeah. So weird. Yeah. I mean, I've got a lot of things with my parents writing on it. And uh, my father's writing was very particular. It was very beautiful. It was almost gothic. And uh, I could never understand how he managed to write so fast. Yeah. Because it's so detailed. That's incredible. So did he have, um, what did he use? He used like a, you know, was it ink? Yeah, a fountain pen. Have you got any of it framed and put up on the wall? I haven't. What a lovely idea. I've done this with my grandmother's things. I made a, I got an artist called Catherine Jones. She's wonderful from Cardiff to make me these big boxes. And then I put my grandmother's, because I didn't want to throw them away, but they, they kind of, there's this weird stuff like rollers and tights, you know, that you don't want to throw away. So I put them all in these display boxes and the way she's laid them out is so beautiful that then they're just on the walls. And it's kind of, my grandmother would be so mortified that I'd framed her hair rollers. <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing? You know, but um, this is such a lovely idea. You should definitely think about doing that with your dad's writing. Oh, I'm going to. Yeah. I'm going to. In fact, my father liked to sing, so I've got pieces of music, sheet music, with his annotations on it about, you know, how to sing it, how to make it work properly. That's beautiful. And then you get to it all the time and it becomes part of your life. You don't have to look in a drawer for it, you know, because because we do sometimes, don't we? But it's not part of your environment. Oh, that's lovely. Lovely. Well, I think your grandmother may have been mortified to find that you've got rollers on the wall. <laughs> But she'd be absolutely thrilled, I can tell you. I know this, that you wore her coat to the Comedy Awards. Oh, gosh, yes. <laughs> Up in London. London, also, like, and with Bruce Forsyth. Oh. You know, people she'd heard of. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that is incredible. Yeah, and she loved a laugh, so that's, uh, yeah, really lucky. How fantastic. She's with you all the time with that coat. I just love the idea of it. Yeah, we'll definitely put that into the time gap so it deserves to be preserved. Thank you. Okay, let's move on to item number two. Okay, now then what else have we got? Right, um, Alan Partridge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Alan Partridge. Um, the, specifically, the Knowing Me, Knowing You TV series. Yeah. Because it came out when I was about, oh God, how old was I? 13, 14? And my parents bought it for me for Christmas. I'd heard it on 
the audio cassette mm-hmm. before and I fell in love with him. I was, I, I just didn't, I'd never heard anything like it. I was, I've always been into comedy ever since I was little. I should just listen to Faulty Towers constantly. We had it on vinyl and Victoria Wood. I was obsessed with Rick Mail. I was in love with. So I was always really into comedy. But um, Alan Partridge just took it up a level. And it was also something maybe that my family hadn't enjoyed with me. It was my very own first little venture into something that was, you know, it was mine. Yeah. was, oh, what's this? We're listening to it on a cassette. (laughs) (laughs) And it's a possibility, I suppose, your parents might have listened to it and thought, no, this man's just embarrassing. Yes, yes, exactly. It took comedy to a different level because there was a thing going on that wasn't going on in Faulty Towers and stuff. This, this kind of, it's not a sitcom. It's not um, jokes. It's a man pretending to be somebody who's being serious, but it's hilarious. It took it into another dimension. And there was an audience there as well. So they, so they were your eyes. Oh, God, it was so... I don't know, I loved it. It blew my mind. That idea as well of having um, a gang, like having a gang of people who you, recurring characters, you know, recurring um, performers. Mm. I'm really drawn to that. And what a gang. Yes. Rebecca Front and yeah. June McKegan and David Schneider, Patrick Marber. Exactly, and all that kind of Amanda Iannucci because I really enjoyed the Saturday Night Armistice and it was just... I just loved that idea that they all switched characters, but they were equally ridiculous and the day to day. And then, I don't know, it just kind of opened a world. And I remember, um, I remember once it was snowing (laughs) because I'm from a rural area. When it snowed, we all had to go home. (laughs) (laughs) Because I was like, quick, we've got to go home. The farmers will never make it. The roads are so bad and time. I would be like, right, everybody out, everybody out. (laughs) (laughs) I lived in town. I didn't live in um, the countryside. So all the townies, so me and um, I was really good friends with Ellis James. You know, you've had him. Oh, lovely Ellis. Yeah, lovely Ellis. We've mates since we were 11, I think, or is it 10 years old? We went to the same school. And a proper best, best mate sat next to each other in every class. We both shared a sense of humour, we still do, and we got into Alan Partridge. And I remember we were both townies. So we walked home in the snow and, you know, let ourselves in. My parents were going to be back for it. And we just watched Alan Partridge all afternoon. <laughs> and, and it was snowing. And it, I just remember thinking, this is what we need to do when we grow up. This is what we're going to do. You know, <laughs> and it was one of those moments. Yeah. And it's weird that we've both gone into comedy. It's really odd. Well, I don't know. With that sort of influence, maybe not. Yeah. It kind of coincided with watching the Beatles anthology. That came out at a similar time. Mm. But I think it's the idea of totally normal people from normal backgrounds getting into something they're really passionate about. And it kind of made it possible. It made it feel like maybe we, well, maybe we could, do you know what I mean? Yeah, why not us? Yeah. Because Steve Coogan was from, you know, Manchester. They were normal people. So there was this vibe of, Oh God! If you're just really passionate about something, you can be really good at it, and you can you can go on to do stuff if you have a gang. That's what it was. That you know what I mean? I do, yeah. And you don't have to have gone to Oxford or Cambridge. No, that was such because before you know, watching a bit of Fry and Laurie and everything, which is wonderful and great, but and John Cleese, of course, and you know, I did always think, oh yes, that it's very funny, but it's they're very privileged, educated white men, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And also, Rick Mail was different as well, but I didn't. I don't. Know, this felt new and different and young, and I don't know. It was great. Absolutely, it is one of the great comedy shows. Of all time, I think. I'm very proud that I went to see Steve Coogan at a smoker when he was at (laughs) university. And I went backstage afterwards and asked if he had a tape of anything he'd done because I was talent scouting for Granada Television. My God. I then suggested him to a friend of mine who was doing Spitting Image and said, I know this bloke does amazing voices. So I feel very proud that I've helped in a way well done (laughs) yes so it's because of you that I'm in comedy pretty much (laughs) 
Absolutely not. I did tell Steve Coogan that. He offered me a Ferrari as payment. No. <laughs> I said, it's very sweet of you, but I can't afford the insurance. <laughs> oh, my God. I've been for a curry with him. Mm-hmm. I remember I was working on them. Um, I was writing Man Down at the time, and it was quite, you know, writing is like, it's quite, you know, deadlines all about. So my head was just writing, 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 no enjoyment. <laughs> you know, and Rod texted me going, do you want to come for a curry? And I was like, no, I'm really busy, darling. Oh, my God. And he was like, I think you may want to come for this curry. Julie Davis is here and Steve Coogan. I was like, right. Oh. <laughs> and I, honestly, I was, I got there and I just, I had wet hair and I just put on a jumper over like nothing. Do you know what I mean? I was so, I'm not missing this curry. <laughs> no, I don't blame you. Incredible. Yeah. I was in Nighty Night with Julia and we filmed the final scenes that I did about four or five months after we'd finished filming, we went back and filmed some more scenes. Uh, basically, my death, I played the vicar in it. So we filmed my scenes, me and Julia and Mark Gatiss, and we filmed them in Steve's house. Wow, was that his house? Yeah. Good grief. So I die in his kitchen. <laughs> Incredible. Amazing. I'm going to send you a photograph of uh, Steve Coogan. Did he do his, um, his broken nose trick? He can move yeah. his nose so it looks broken. No. I'll send you a photograph. <laughs> yes, please. Yeah, the few people that I get a little bit... Yeah, I just have to keep pinching myself because I remember that day as a 14-year-old in the snow going, wow. It's hard, isn't it? And also now when I look back at that and I watch it again, I you realise how young he was. Mm. Because at the time I thought, oh, he's like in his 40s, a chat show host. And now you look at it and go, bloody, what? Yeah, well, I think he probably was. In his 20s. What I love is that Coogan is now the age that Partridge should be. Isn't it incredible? <laughs> I always thought that character can run and run and run. Yeah. Because it, it's such a good character. I can see that in an old people's home. I can see him as at 80 in an old people's home, of course. Oh, absolutely. I know exactly what he'd be like. What a brilliant thing. God, he was fabulous. And uh, and that whole crowd, you know, I mean, I worked with Patrick Marber when they were just doing the radio series, so when they were doing, uh, yeah, On the Hour, yeah. on the radio. And the Partridge character was just coming through. Patrick Marber absolutely knew where that character was going and he knew exactly what would happen and he was right. I can't think of any other character that's actually happened to where you kind of, you see it in little sketches, you know, on the day-to-day and stuff and that. That amazing scene where he's trying to explain how the... Is it FIFA? (laughs) (laughs) It's so funny. Yeah. So that character, he's quite raw there, but the way it develops over a lifetime and how you're with him, it spans such a... It's a life. It's a man's life. Yeah. There's nothing else that epic, I don't think, in comedy. No, where, in fact, he can now make jokes about things that we know have happened to him in his career. Yes. And they didn't happen. It's all fictional. Yes. Oh, I love it. It's so clever. It's so clever. Mm. Yeah. What a guy. <laughs> he's shown that actually he's he's a very, very good actor. He's incredible. Mm. Definitely. What is the film? We saw a film. Is it what May is Maisie? What Maisie saw? Or it's about a film where he's split up with um his partner and they have a little girl. And it's just it's phenomenal, his performance. Everything I see him in, he's brilliant. But, like, this particular film was just a wow. You've got to be a really good performer to make a 14-year-old go, well, he's clearly a 45-year-old naff TV presenter. I mean, And then to find out, oh, he's 20 and from Manchester, what? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, that's at such a young age. What a talent. Yeah. Yeah, it blows my mind, absolutely. And I think it just tapped into something that was inside me that was that's my humour, you know, that's exactly my humour. And the whole gang, the whole gang can do it. Mm. It's that playfulness, isn't it? And it's the, I don't know, you you just sense it immediately. Everything they do, you're like, yep. (laughs) Yeah, but also that confidence to make those people, well, often dislikable. Yes. But incredibly real. Yeah, I mean, because I still get people saying to me, they've got to be likeable, the characters. And I'm like, they really don't. Comedy characters don't need to be likeable. No. You just need to empathise with why they're like that. That's it. Absolutely. (laughs) No, it's true. They don't need to be likeable at all. You paint yourself into a corner if you're trying to make people likeable all the time. Mm. They never need to tell you that they're being funny. Yes. 
that was the big lesson I learned with Partridge was that thing of he's not telling a joke. He's trying to be taken seriously. He absolutely believes it's his mantra. Yes, exactly. And it's, oh yeah, it's, it's just wonderful. I absolutely love it and how his attitudes to, to everything just comes out. And that, that scene where he's holding a debate between MPs and he's got a female MP and a black MP clearly his favourite, the Conservative MP. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just, it just goes to show you don't need, uh, it doesn't need to be slapstick. Character can just come out in attitudes and what you say, what you don't say. It's just fascinating. Yeah. Well, you can tell from my reaction, I'm not that bothered either way, you know. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I'll take him or leave him. I'm going to put it in the time capsule, though, otherwise we'll never move on. <laughs> <laughs> OK, what's number three? What's item number three? Okay, it's ad break time. We'll be back before you can say supercalifragilisticexpialy. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of what-ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Docious, see? Right, let's get back to Sean Harris and find out what else she would preserve in her time capsule. It is a book called Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. I don't know it. It's Judy Bloom. It's an incredible book. I read it when I was 12, maybe? No, younger, possibly 10 or 10, 11. Mm. And it is a coming-of-age book. It's by Judy Bloom, who's this brilliant... She writes a lot of books for that age group, girls. And it's just about a girl whose parents, one of her parents is Jewish, one of them's Christian. So she's kind of, the, they don't really have a religion. So she's trying to find, a kind. she talks to God a lot. She's not religious, but she's kind of trying to find something, you know, that age. And um, it's about her starting puberty. And it's about her... They've got a gang, again, something I'm obsessed with, having a little gang of friends, and they all get together and <laughs> and do exercises to try and get bigger boobs. <laughs> <laughs> She's very worried that her boobs aren't growing. And it was the first book that I'd ever read that was like, oh, my God, this could be written for me. It's a proper girl, exactly the same age, and it's about her anxieties and how she sees the world and things that you don't, you don't, you can't talk about with your parents. You can't say to your mum, I'm really worried my tits aren't growing. <laughs> no. <laughs> and it's, you can't even tell your friends in a way. It's such a, you know, personal, weird kind of worry to have. So this woman was just, she's talking to me. And I just remember thinking, I can't put it down. And it's the first time I've ever read a book. I've always been obsessed with reading. But it's the first time I've ever read a book where I was rationing it to myself. So I was going, right, I'm going to do five pages now and then and then think about it. And then, <laughs> but then I couldn't put it down. And I remember getting into trouble because um, my grandmother wanted me to go to chapel and I was like, okay, but can I take this book? And she was like, you can't just openly read. The <laughs> and I was like, I can't put it down. You don't understand. So yeah, that book. And it just changed everything. 
made me fall in love with writing and never really had somebody talk to me like that before. It's a good title, isn't it? Yeah. Are You There, God? Are You There, God? That's very good. It's me, Margaret. Yeah. Yeah. Because it is that weird time in in a child's life, especially girls. I mean, I mean, boys get it as well, they must do. But that thing of you're very aware that your life as a woman is totally different to life as a girl. The way you're treated, the way you're seen, the way it's quite visual if you're a girl, isn't it? How women meant to look. Yeah, I'm not <laughs> sure that boys particularly see themselves as sex objects. You know, you, you really can't imagine that when you're a boy, that yeah. anybody would ever look at you that way. So it's not part of the growing up process. Of course, sex is absolutely never out of your mind. <laughs> yes. But you don't imagine it ever being something that you do with someone else. Yes. And I think with girls, it's very difficult because you do get start getting that attention as quite a young age, like scarily mm. younger. You know, you just do. Yeah. And thing, and it becomes a competition between other girls you know, who kind of compare each other's you know, who started the period, who hasn't. And there's this big kind of race going on to become a woman, but also you're not really ready for it either. You're quite scared of it. And um, it really taps into that, this book. Yeah, I loved reading. Mm. And (laughs) I weirdly got um, a sweet, not sweet deal. I remember being about 10. So at the tail end of primary school, being very aware that school wasn't necessarily doing anything for my <laughs> development. You know what I mean? As a, I was kind of going, right, all we do in school is draw ships and stick them into collages. It, it's a waste. <laughs> you know, and I remember having this conversation with my mum going, also my best friend in school was in a car accident, so she'd broken her leg, so she wasn't in school. And so I was like, look, it's just a waste of time. Can I stay home? and read I think that would be better for me as a person and you know and then you know I'll go to big school it'll be fine but can I just and my mum let me oh wow which is you know kind of controversial but I think she was like well yeah if you are just taking pictures of ships then (laughs) yeah and also if you feel that actually you can advance yourself quicker than they're advancing you yeah and I think I read a lot when I was off, you know, I'd, I'd go through books just every Saturday in Smith's buying books. And I just I was obsessed with it. I love reading. That was, that's what was so weird about um, COVID because when the pandemic first struck, I couldn't read. It's, oh, I it was so bizarre. And it's, I think it's probably the scariest thing that's ever happened to me. That thing of, um, I remember trying to read and going, oh, it's not, like I can't read. Like a reader's block. I couldn't wouldn't go in mm-hmm. the only thing I could do I was like okay well what about writing and I was like no that's not helping either the only thing I could do was coloring in <laughs> so we'd be watching something on tv and I'd be coloring in and I'd lift it at the end and go Rod look look what I'm and he'd be like yes very nice <laughs> and he was like what what's going on I was like, I'm not sure I just really like the control of staying in the lines and the colours are nice. <laughs> All my brain can handle at the moment. So bizarre. God, that does make sense to me, the idea of, well, look, I can do this and I know I'm in control of this. Whereas everything else, you go, oh, God, I'm not sure I can do any of that at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. It was a frightening time, wasn't it? We've all learned to cope with it a bit better. We've all learned to yes. partition it off, I think. Yes. There's a lot of blocking going on, isn't there? And I think a lot of like, okay, well, we can control this and this is a routine that we have and that makes us feel better. And, you know, I think, um, and it's not out of the blue. I think that's what the weird thing was, was, oh, what? (laughs) You know, that kind of, well, what's going to happen then? Because we'd never lived for anything like that before. No. But that thing of being in control, in a way it reflects into what you were saying about the pressure on young girls to be a woman, Mm. to turn into a woman. You know you've got to go there. How do you do it? And you see that conflict in young girls all the time because they have myriad examples of what it is to be a woman. They see them. They see the makeup. They see the way you do the hair. They've seen all those things, you know, and you look at them and go, you're a little girl. Yeah. Oh, it's it's terribly um, sad. And it's natural because you always want to mimic people who are older than you mm-hmm. and you want to go oh god it's so exciting when you wear makeup for the first time and 
you know, I didn't understand. My dad was like, take it off now. <laughs> and I was like, but what? But I look really nice. You know, yeah. but he was like, no, you're not wearing red lipstick, you're eight. <laughs> yeah. So I totally understand it. That's natural, that kind of wanting to play dress up. But then also it's sad when, the thing that makes it sad for me is that a lot of it means that women's worth is pinned on what you look like and how you use your body to entice a man. Mm. That's the bit that saddens me. It would be okay if that was just running alongside it. (laughs) But it's when that becomes the focus and that's your main aim in life is to attract attention by being attractive to to men because there's Mm. much more that you can achieve. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I talk about this from the point of view of of a father of a daughter. You know, so I might I'm just walking through the town with my sort of 13 year old daughter and her doing all that mimicking and then me glaring at men. Don't you dare look at my daughter like that. Of course. Yeah. It's the double standard of it all. That thing of this is how you have to look, but don't go too overboard because then you'll be a slag. And it's this tightrope of like, well, which one is it then? Am I supposed, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> you know, just tell me what I'm supposed to do. Yeah. And this book is like a blueprint of, oh, okay, another girl is also going through it. It's not just me in my head. And yeah, it was great. It was so nice to read something like that finally. Yes. And that gives you the confidence to go, well, if we're all going through this, in fact, maybe some of it is bullshit. Yeah, exactly. It's bullshit. You're not alone. Books like that are so important, aren't they? Because sometimes you can't have that honest conversation with your parents. It's a shameful, or you think it's shameful. You know, it's very secret, isn't it? And so having somebody who is being quite candid, telling you in a book what's going on and how she also feels like that, it's it's just vital. Mm. Yeah, I can imagine. (laughs) <laughs> I'm trying to think what sort of book I would have needed when I was <laughs> not one that I'd want to share. I think <laughs> you can put it in a time capsule. I'm just going to bury it. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. Okay, Sean, that that goes into the time capsule. Right. Okay. Let's move on. Right. Well, the next one is: Have you seen It's a Wonderful Life? I have seen It's a Wonderful Life. Right. <laughs> That's my next one because it runs through oh. my life like a stick of rock. <laughs> because I watch it every well every year we watch it at least once and I've been watching it since I was a very little girl my dad is obsessed with it so he watches it all the time and I introduced it to Rod when we first met he's now obsessed with it we have um big screenings of it on the side of our house oh. in the garden <laughs> and especially we started doing it during lockdown because we have um lovely elderly neighbours who are just so, so beautiful but we can't we couldn't spend time with them obviously it was outdoors was okay but it was cold so we started film night which was um yeah we project it onto the wall and we all sit under blankets and drink hot drinks and make sure they're warm enough <laughs> and then we all watch it's one of life together it's just magical oh it is magical not only do i like it it is my favorite film me too oh my god oh my god it's just wonderful But it is. Well, then we we could go on for hours in that case because (laughs) what I think is brilliant about it, and uh, every time I watch it, it strikes me as being the genius of it, is we remember that as a really happy, lovely Christmas film because of the end. But nearly all of it is really dark and really sad. Everybody's life is falling apart. And this is an American film where they're pushing the reason for that happening because of one person's pursuit of wealth. Yes, yes. It's fascinating in that sense, isn't it? Yeah, it's astonishingly socialist. I know. I often I often joke that the Labour Party should take that film and just put a Labour... The Labour Party brings to you <laughs> yeah. this film. It's, it's such a... Oh, it, honestly, I think it's the blueprint of how I think we should all live. Just remember how many people's lives you touch daily Mm. and you just do. Just a little kindness here and there means the world to so many people and together you're so much better off than if you're just on your own trying to make a profit. And um, it's just wonderful. We went to see it in the Prince Charles Theatre a few years ago (laughs) and, uh, and, you know, it was Christmas. Every year Rod and I have a day together where we do Christmassy things 
and it's really lovely. So we usually watch this one for life and go and watch people falling over and ice skating. <laughs> and we went to see it and somebody, it was a matinee, but somebody was clearly in a bit of a bad mood <laughs> because about 10, 15 minutes into the film, they kind of, they went like, will you please stop doing that? Like somebody be, sitting behind them was maybe fidgeting or maybe had kicked their seat by accident. So we turned around and had a proper go at this woman, or I can't remember, but sitting behind him. And at the whole theatre went, ooh, do you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's quite a long film, isn't it? It's two hours. And we all kind of forgot about it. <laughs> and then the ending happens. Everyone's in floods of tears. Oh, it's incredible. And as we were filing out, we heard this man say to this woman, I am so sorry. Oh. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I was having a bad day. I should not have snapped at you. Everyone's like, it's okay. We're friends now. And everyone's in so much tears. Oh. Beautiful. The way it can change minds, yeah. you know? It changes you, that film. Yes. I mean, everybody in it is wonderful as well. It's, it's just full of the most beautiful performances. That, that I don't know the actor is who plays Clarence, but it's so, oh, it's so touching. I know, it's magical. My dad is so obsessed with it. He starts crying. You know, at the beginning when the bells start ringing, mm-hmm. my dad's crying then. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not surprised. I mean, people who love it adore it. That's me. I think I once said to my wife, in a romantic moment, I said, I'll throw a rope around the moon. No. She said, what? <laughs> no. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Sean, I wish I knew you more because now this is about 10 years ago, but this is an extraordinary coincidence. About 10 years ago, I played the father in a musical version what? of it. Whoa. And that musical, which was just about one of the most glorious experiences of my career, was written by a man called Steve Brown. And Steve Brown is Glenn Ponder. <gasps> No. Yeah. This is your grand doing this. Oh, I would not put it past her. <laughs> no. He wrote that. He wrote the musical of It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah, he's a great writer. Really beautiful stuff it was. Absolutely gorgeous. And we never performed it without the entire audience leaping to their feet with tears running down their face. And we would all stand there taking our bows with tears pouring down our faces. Wow. Oh, God, Sean, what an experience. It was so beautiful. Oh, I just love it. I love the fact that um, psychologists just hand it out in America. They give it to people, don't they? To patients and go, just watch this. I mean, it's life-affirming. And it's every time I watch it, I must have seen it, oh, God, a hundred times. Every time I see it, I notice something different. What a film. Mm. And it was, like, what was it, 1939? Yeah. That doesn't happen with any other film where I notice different things over and over and over. There's so many stories going on in it. Yeah. It's a town, isn't it? It's a whole town of characters. And it is exactly what you say, that all of them are intertwined. And that actually if you're feeling worthless or you're feeling that you can't change anything or do anything about the world, that film changes that attitude in you. It makes you think, no, I am important. I am important because of how I affect everybody else. Yes, absolutely. And it's just tiny, tiny things. And what I love as well, you know, Rod goes, the only thing that really annoys him about it is the guy who goes, ee-haw, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. And Greg Davis, a really good friend of ours, said the same thing. He's like, yeah, I don't like that bit either. It's really irritating. And I was like, no, the reason it exists, <laughs> the reason, and the bit that really makes me just block you know, all of my emotions come out, is at the end where he gets a telegram from Sam Wainwright and he's been his nemesis throughout his life, hasn't he? This kind of guy who's big shot, he's left. The things that he should have done. If I, Why did I bother with this silly little town and you stupid people? I could have been him. I could have been out there making a load of money and been rich. Jimmy, they're always in competition and Mary chooses George instead of Sam and it's like, why did you ever choose a man like me? And it's throughout the entire thing. So then when he gets a telegram and he goes, yee-haw, in the telegram, oh. it all comes together and you go, oh, it's that guy who keeps saying it. it's him. Oh, my God, are you crying? I am crying. I am <laughs> crying. Oh, my God. Oh, my, it's so, and then Rod is like, yeah, of course. But it's the detail. Oh, it's beautiful. It's so good. 
And I've always, everything I create, I try and go, right, detail, detail, detail. You know, it's so important. Ehaw. Oh, my God. <laughs> it means that he has enough money then to survive, but it's not about the money at all. No. It's not. No. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's this man demonstrating that you ever ask me for a favour. Yeah. You get it. Yes. Oh. <laughs> People listening to this going, oh, God, I'm going to have to watch this film. No, they're all going, I'm never watching that bloody film. (laughs) (laughs) Turn me into some sort of weeping idiot. (laughs) I I absolutely adore it. And Christmas isn't Christmas without watching that at least twice. It's funny, but once we were in a rush on Christmas Eve, my dad, he gets quite stressed, and we were in a rush, and he was like, well, let's watch, and then, so he fast-forwarded it, and he just watched the end, the last (laughs) (laughs) And it's like, Dad, I know we know it off my heart. And we're still crying. (laughs) (laughs) You maniac. (laughs) I mean, it's so emotional, isn't it? It's so emotional. Me and my um, lovely friend Gabs, we went to see it in um, a cinema close to us, like, was it a couple of years ago? And it was the Alzheimer's screening. So they do a screening for people suffering with dementia and Alzheimer's. And it was so joyous. So they stopped it in the middle. There was an intermission because it was quite long. Then we had a guy come on in the middle and sing Christmas carols. It was such a lovely, lovely event. Just beautiful. And that's what it's all about, isn't it? Yeah, fantastic. Well, you've made my day, made my week. <laughs> God, I'm going to put that in there, but I'm going to, you know, I might leave a little crack so I can watch it whenever I like. <laughs> okay, so we've got one thing to put in that you want to banish from your life. Um, going to bed. <laughs> <laughs> the miss is three o'clock in the morning, yes. Yeah, it's bad. I think um, I really, ever since I was a little girl, I don't like going to bed. I don't like it. It's really weird. I should really grow up. But um, <laughs> I know, I just don't like it. I hate going to bed. I'm really bad at it. And um, I kind of, I prepare for bed the way that most people prepare for like a long haul flight. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like notebooks, a pen, my laptop, like electrical stuff. And like Rod will come in and go, <laughs> and I'll be surrounded by a nest. I'm just in a nest of stuff. And Rod would be like, it's like curries in here. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, how is this relaxing? How are you going to ever sleep? And it's, I don't know what it is. I can't explain it. It's like, I just don't, the, the thought of just going from conscious to unconscious, willingly, <laughs> just freaks me out. My brain is too active mm-hmm. for that. Like when I go for a massage, I love going for a massage because I usually write a lot when in my head when I'm getting one. And I think it's because if I have something else going on, my brain can be busy with it. So if someone's touching my back, my brain will be like, oh, someone's touching my back. So the rest of my brain can get on with other stuff. I think there's like two, there's always two channels going on, you know? Yeah. And I think sleep is the same. I think there's too much going on for me just to zone out. I have to be really exhausted to fall asleep how interesting i have a granddaughter who's exactly the same really you can see she's so desperate to go to sleep she's exhausted and she fights it she just starts to drift and then she just comes back no i'm not going i'm not going yeah it's not being naughty or anything like that it's just what if something happens it's almost that yes and all the best stuff happens at night it really does all of the exciting things happen in the night <laughs> I'm fine. <laughs> no, but um, I really like it as well. I really love the fact that everything's quiet and you can just you can get on with stuff. You know, everyone else is asleep. I've been the same since mm. I was little. If I had swimming the next morning, I would wear my swim costume and get dressed and just sit and wait for you know to go swimming. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I get excited too easily, I think, because uh, yeah. And Rod Rod has to keep telling me sometimes. Oh, try and trick me into thinking, oh, it's night time. So we have to turn all the lights down and Rod will be like, shh, okay, winding down. <laughs> you know, winding down. No excitable, we're going to go to sleep soon. So going to bed, that's the one for me. I don't like it. I kind of, I'm fine. I'm never tired. And I kind of like that I have, I have a kind of extra half day on my own, mm. which is really nice for writing and just catching up on stuff, you know. So I'm not sure. I mean, 
it can't be good. I don't know. I think people have different requirements with sleep. Yeah, I think that as well. I mean, it's a lot of people kind of, um, there's a real moral thing about waking up early, isn't there? There's a, a thing. Yeah, there is. Definitely be made to feel guilty for being a night owl. I'm definitely, you know, oh, you should go to bed. It's not good for you and things like that. But yeah, it works for me. I think most of the things I've ever written have been late at night. See, we're all being cited. Margaret Thatcher, who get by on two hours sleep a night, and you go, well, she didn't know, did she? Because she, she didn't get by at all. No. She destroyed the world. She was a personification of evil. What are you talking about? <laughs> Or if she couldn't go to sleep, perhaps she should have watched It's a Wonderful Life. <laughs> well, I'm perfectly happy for you to stay awake. Yeah. So I'm going to put going to bed into the time capsule. Oh. And I'm going to say, oh, God, I've had a most brilliant time talking to you. Oh, well, me too. This is lovely. You know, what a great way to spend, like, the midday, just having a lovely chat about It's a Wonderful Life and, like, my favourite books and stuff. Great. <laughs> Thank you. Excellent. <laughs> You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Sean Harris. If you enjoyed this episode, then please subscribe to this podcast, if you haven't done already, for all new episodes as they're released. You can even review and rate the show on the podcast provider of your choice. And you can listen to the theme tune at your leisure on Spotify. It was written by Pass the Peas Music. This was a cast-off production for Acast. The producer was John Fenton-Stevens. Don't forget you can follow and contact me or My Time Capsule on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. And we'll do our best to answer any questions you might have for us. Although, to be straight with you, I'm not great at maths. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, there are three types of people in this world. Those who are good at maths and those who aren't. Bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.